Tracy. Well, good morning, everyone. Not bad, not bad. Good morning, everyone. Let's go. Oh, so good. So excited about this. So excited to be back. I was away for a few Sundays. Been looking forward to this series for about eight months. It's on the Beatitudes. So if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Let me introduce myself quick if you don't know me. My name is Jordan. I'm on staff here at the shore. Always love getting to open up the, the scriptures and preach and teach. So Like I said, we are starting a new series on the Beatitudes, which are the first portion of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which essentially is the most important, most impactful sermon ever preached. Here's what St. Augustine said about it. He said, it is the perfect standard of Christian conduct. And so for the Christian, it is the greatest and most important sermon ever preach. There is nothing anywhere like it. Why? Well, to begin with, it comes from the lips of Jesus. It is essentially a condensed, concise essence of all of his theology. Another reason why it's the greatest sermon ever is that it is so absolutely penetrating that when you read through it, you cannot help but have the difficult yet beautiful work of self-evaluation happening where you are forced to see precisely where you're at in your relationship and in your trust of Jesus. There isn't anything like this portion of the scriptures that will really strip down all of your armor, that will take down all of your fronts, all of the faces you wear. The sermon is aggressive and it is disruptive, but it's disruptiveness can be what sets us free. It is the most life-giving, freeing portion of the scriptures. And I'll be honest, it's been one of the most impactful portions of scripture in my life. And that's because every time I look at it, it reveals to me that I come up short. And maybe you're like, that doesn't sound great. But I see myself as I truly am, a sinner in need of grace. And because of that, my heart is stirred with affection for Jesus Christ. I'm reminded that despite my shortcomings, I am loved. That in the midst of darkness, there is light and hope to be found. And my prayer for us as we go through this short portion of the Sermon of the Mount over the next few weeks is that we will not be the same people today, August 1st, as we are at the end of the month. My hope is that line by line, day by day, this will chip away at our hearts. And so before we begin our journey into the first beatitude, I really want to set the table for where we're going in the coming weeks, okay? If I were to describe and summarize what the beatitudes were in one sentence, I would simply describe them as the characteristics of the followers of Christ, the characteristics of the followers of Christ. In fact, in my studies on the Beatitudes, and I took a class on this, um, I found a multitude of different titles given to the Beatitudes. They'll be on the screen. I won't read through them all. But the Manifesto of the Kingdom, the Royal Family Code, the Messianic Ethic, and on and on. Now, as is the case with all sayings and and great teachings throughout history, Jesus' Beatitudes need to be heard and seen from the context in which he first spoke them. Always important when you're reading the scriptures, see what's going on before, what's going on after, what's the setting, who's there. 
Stanley Jones says, if we separate his beatitudes from the context in which he first spoke it, his words, which are meant to give life, will become either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. And we don't want that. So what then is the context? If you have time later, go ahead and read all of Matthew chapter 4. I don't have time for all of it now. But in Matthew 4, the verses immediately before this, Matthew is very careful to help us realize that Jesus first spoke his Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount right after he first announced his gospel. So he speaks his Beatitudes in the context of the gospel. That is crucial to remember. In the book of Mark, we have an expanded version of Jesus' announcement of his gospel. It, it essentially tells us um, the only definition Jesus ever gives about his gospel. So right after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus comes to Galilee preaching the gospel of God, and he says this in verse 15. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Are you following Jesus here? Like, think about him saying that. That is a disruptive statement to culture around him. And likewise, to culture around us. In fact, you will know that the gospel is evident in your life, that you are being beatitude people when your way of life causes disruption to the cultural standards around you. I'm not saying you go out picking fights, I'm just saying that your way of thinking, will, your way of living will have people thinking like, hmm, that's different. The gospel according to Jesus is that in him and because of him, history has reached this major crisis point. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. We are passing from one era on into another. The gospel according to Jesus is that in him and because of him, the long-awaited, glorious, recreated reign of God is about to invade the earth, and that's through the person and work of Jesus. As one commentator put it, he says the gospel according to Jesus is good news not just because our sins have been forgiven and we are, we are now seen as innocent before the judge of the universe. The gospel is good news not only because we are then adopted into the family of God. The gospel is good news not only because we have been given eternal life, but the gospel according to Jesus is such good news because God's new world order is breaking into our darkness. The future, eternity, is breaking into present. Heaven is invading earth. And I know, I've talked to some of you, I know a lot of you are walking in incredible brokenness right now. And the words of Isaiah are happening right now as the power of the gospel moves in this room. He says the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And Jesus pairs his gospel announcement with a call for us. A call for us to change our thinking. It's a word you've heard a lot if you've been in church. He says, repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And if you're brand new to church, we're so glad you're here. Repent simply means to turn around. Think again. 
Think anew. You've been heading this direction that's wrong, that's not leading to life, trusting in the wrong things. Make a U-turn and believe my good news. And so it is in that context that Jesus begins to preach his most important sermon ever. And so here is the implication for our understanding of what's to come. And this is huge. This is the foundation of our whole series here. The clearest sign that you are in fact turning around and believing and trusting in the gospel is that the beatitude characteristics are evident in your life. That we are becoming beatitude people. You want to know whether you've taken hold of the gospel, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that you are standing in the gospel? The clearest sign that you have made that U-turn in your own way of thinking and embracing Jesus and his gospel is that you are becoming beatitude people. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is simply describing a group of people whom his gospel has taken a hold of. He's drawing a sketch of those who are born again from above and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is describing a gospelized community and sure, how amazing would it be if that's how our community was described. And so, so that's where we're going. That's the foundation we have to remember. Separate Jesus' gospel from the Beatitudes and they will become either frustrating idealism or oppressive legalism. And we don't want that. Now before we dive into our first one here, a few other things to note about the Beatitudes that we'll see over the next few weeks. There are eight Beatitudes in total. They all begin with the same word, blessed. And we'll see exactly what that means in a second. We'll see that there's a divine progression through them. In other words, you begin with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then you move on into mourning over your sin, which will end in us being comforted. Then you move on into humility or meekness, and those will inherit the earth. In other words, they build upon each other. There's a beautiful, divine progression within them. They are theologically linked statements, but there is absolute unity amongst them. You cannot separate them. You'll also notice that the very first beatitude, as well as the very last beatitude, end the same way. They both end by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is a bracketing Hebrew stylistic way of indicating that everything in between those verses describes the kingdom of heaven. So there's this beautiful unity and that unity will have a way of hammering home the deepest and most impactful of truths to us, the readers. There is nothing like this. Last background thing I'll point out before we dive in. These are eight interrelated qualities of the same person. It's not 
eight different people. It's not like, you're a poor and spirit person, you're a merciful person. No, this is talking about the same person as followers of Jesus, as, as those who have taken hold of the gospel. These characteristics are what we are called to. And so with that in mind, let's begin to dive into this text here, okay? So we know that Matthew tells us that Jesus just preached his gospel for the first time. And, and as he did, great crowds were coming to see him. There was like an electricity. People were buzzing all over the place. They were bringing in people to be healed. His fame was spreading everywhere. Even as he went out into the wilderness, people were waiting for him as he came back with excitement, wanting to see him, wanting to hear from him, wanting to touch him. And then in Matthew 5, verse 1, we read that Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. So in the midst of everything that was happening, right, the, elect the electric atmosphere all around him, Jesus walks up to a raised place. And like all first century rabbis did, he sat down to teach and his followers surrounded him to listen. And so here's Jesus now being marveled over by a great many people sitting in a place of authority, and he opens his mouth to begin the most impactful sermon in the history of the world. And so what's the first thing he's going to say? It's got to be important, whatever it is. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's slow down here. Let's, let's mark this. We've already said that this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the most powerful person to ever walk on this earth. And this is the initial phrase of that sermon. Like, Jesus could have come out of the gate with anything here, right? But he starts with this. Why? Because it's foundational. It is a foundational beatitude that you have to understand before you can understand any other beatitude or any other thing Jesus is going to teach in the entirety of the sermon. You cannot rush past this. This is a prerequisite for understanding and living out everything else he's going to teach. If you don't get this straight, you won't get any of the other beatitudes straight. So we have to slow down and dive into what he's saying here. Now, the first thing I want to notice is that this beatitude begins, like all others do, with the word blessed. Blessed. So what does he mean by blessed? Because we throw that out all the time. Have a blessed day. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Like, what is, he, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the Greek word used is makairos. It's often translated to the English word happy. But that's not an accurate translation in the context of this text. Because the word happy in the English language has the root word hap, which means chance. And what Jesus is talking about here in the Beatitudes has nothing to do with chance. Additionally, happiness would suggest a feeling, right? 
But Jesus is not teaching a feeling here. So what is he teaching? John Stott puts it this way. It is seriously misleading to render happy. For happiness is a subjective state. So what's he saying? Whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. So he's not declaring what you may feel, but rather what God thinks of you. And so when you hear the word blessed through all eight of these beatitudes, think of this. It is a positive judgment about you by God. Blessed equals a positive judgment about you by God. And, and so, yeah, like happiness can obviously pour out of that, but happiness is not the essence of the word blessed. It is a positive judgment about you by God that you are blessed when you live out said beatitude. In my studies, I found a, a list of other words to replace blessed that might be helpful to, to fill in the blanks here. Some of them, uh, I really love the first one and the last one, um, approved, fortunate, congratulations, Carl Barth, I don't know, you lucky bums. In alignment, I love this one, in sync with Jesus. So ultimately, when he says blessed are blank, he's saying in sync with Jesus are the poor in spirit, approved by Jesus are the poor in spirit. It is a positive judgment, a pronouncement that you are approved by God himself when said beatitude is evident in your life. And so here's what we need to keep in mind this entire series if we want Jesus to speak to us through these Beatitudes. And that is that the approval of God should be the only approval that matters. Not approval from friends, not approval from coworkers, not what your neighbor thinks about you. But do you want God's approval? I don't know what the answer is for you. Because if you do, then the Beatitudes are going to awaken your soul and lead you into such freedom. And so where does this blessedness, this in sync with Jesus, this approval come from then? Well, Jesus says in three words, poor in spirit. In sync with Jesus, approved by Jesus, are the poor in spirit. So we have to ask then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? First, I want to quickly unpack what it does not mean. I think that'll be helpful. It does not mean that you are of no value whatsoever. It doesn't mean an absence of self-worth. That's not what we mean by poor in spirit, because that is theologically not true. You are, in fact, of great value because the blood of Jesus was poured out for you, and in doing so, you have been adopted as sons and daughters into Jesus' family. So that's a tremendous value. Nor does poor in spirit mean shyness or being introverted or being quiet. Because honestly, you can be the most shy, introverted, quiet person and still be the most narcissistic, proud person, can't you? And it definitely doesn't mean showy humility. 
You know, like, I don't think there's a greater oxymoron than a proud, humble person. So what then does he mean by poor in spirit? Well, the Greek origin of the word poor is really what's going to make this come alive for us this morning, okay? So in classical Greek, the noun poor would come to mean a beggar, a beggar who would cringe about and beg because it's the only way he could survive. And when you come to the New Testament, the word has a specific meaning, but in our case, here's what our word poor means. Someone who is in such deep poverty that the only way that they can survive is by begging. The only way they can survive is getting something given to them from outside of them. And so a simple translation for us this morning would be beggarly poor. Oh, how blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the one who is so beggarly poor in their spiritual strength that they have to have help from outside of them. Those are the ones that God says approved in sync with Jesus. You are blessed. As one commentator puts it, it's as if we are declaring spiritual bankruptcy. It's an awareness of our inadequacy and our sinfulness. John Wesley puts it this way, he has a deep sense of loathsome leprosy of his sin, which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power within him. In essence, it is the recognition of personal and moral unworth. And so the poor in spirit, they see themselves as spiritually needy. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves that would commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this poverty of spirit that the Beatitude is saying here, isn't that the absolute opposite of our world around us? And the opposite of where our culture is and what our society values? Here's what I mean. This is disruptive thinking. And, and honestly, like, I know it's uncomfortable out there. I know it takes courage. I know from experience it can be isolating. But a really good gauge for where you're at in your relationship with Jesus is how disruptive or counterintuitive your way of life is to the world around you. In John 15, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so sure, now more than ever, we don't let culture reshape the gospel. No, we let the gospel 
penetrate culture around us through how we live our lives. And I know it's hard, but blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the example Jesus set for us, isn't it? Jesus said, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Well, deny yourself. Trust in me. Carry your own cross. Confess that you are beggarly poor. And I will say, approved are you. Blessed are you. For yours is the kingdom. And we'll get into how great that reward is shortly. Like, I can only imagine if there were a set of beatitudes created by the world for the world. Like, how opposite to Jesus' teaching would they sound? Blessed is the one who is strong and able on their own. Blessed is the one who's self-satisfied. Blessed are those who hustle for fame and fortune. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are those who find their identity within themselves. Approved are they. I'm sure there's a lot more. But here's the truth. Today, men and women outside the church, and I believe sadly many within, have found that the answer to all life's questions and, and true joy are found in themselves. And the Lord Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. We really got to understand and embrace a true poverty of spirit because it's the only grounds for divine blessing. King David, who was the greatest king of Israel, right? When you think of David, you often immediately think of his epic reign and rule, his might, his power, the height of Israel, but that's not where it began for David. Early on, David said, whoa, 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 who am I? And, and what is my life that I should be the king's son? Who am I that you brought me this far? And that characteristic of a poverty of spirit is what launched his life into greatness notwithstanding his shortcomings, his faults, his sin, there's grace for that, but it began with a poverty of spirit. Or how about the story of Gideon, which we celebrate, this epic victory? How does it begin? Judges 6. Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Me? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so poor in spirit is the foundation of all the Beatitudes. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. No one can come to Jesus without it. And look, I have to imagine that at churches all over the world, maybe even here, there are men and women who have been attending church for years who know all of the right answers to everything, who have all of the songs memorized, who know their Bibles really well, who know when to do that, like, hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, that's good. And at the same time, they've never confessed that they are in beggarly need of spiritual help. And I have to wonder 
Have you felt in sync with Jesus? It's this whole notion that Jesus will say in chapter 7 of the sermon about knowing about God versus knowing God. It's not the same thing. And the good news is, if that's you, you can repent of that this morning. There is grace. There is love. There is freedom for you. All it takes is you confessing that you are not able, that despite knowing all of the answers and all the things to do externally, internally, you don't feel in sync with Jesus. You can repent of that now. And he will say, approved. And if it's true that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then the opposite is also true. And that's a scary place to be. And Jesus is pleading with you to get out of that this morning. Not, not because it's, it's legalistic and you'll earn his favor, but because he so desperately loves you and wants a personal relationship with you. And by submitting to him, he knows that you will experience more joy than you could ever possibly imagine. And ultimately, you'll have freedom from your sin and eternal life. This is the foundation of being a follower of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You cannot fully know Jesus without it. You cannot grow closer to Jesus without it. This is the first thing that Jesus starts off his most famous sermon with because if you miss it, you miss it all. And contrary to to what you may think about the Beatitudes, they are not a progression. You don't start with one, then you like level up and move on. No, you never outgrow any of these, especially the first Beatitude, because without it, you will never grasp the rest. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, a church that was ignoring this first beatitude. Look what he says about them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so we have to realize that if we have not come to a poverty of spirit, we cannot come to Jesus. And if you don't have that posture, we're not going to be able to grow in our faith. And so we have this divine approval, which is available to us by being poor in spirit. And then we have this ultimate reward. He says, for theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the reward. And the word theirs, that word is emphatic. It means theirs and theirs alone. There is only one type of person who gets the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. And that means that the kingdom of God is yours both now and into eternity. It is a continual thing, not a static thing. We go through life now. We confess that we are poor in spirit and we enter the kingdom of heaven. It comes and reigns within us. And we continue on in the kingdom into eternity, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And because we are poor in spirit and the kingdom of heaven is at work in us now, we become overcomers. 
We reign with him, and we go on into eternity, somehow sharing in the physical, material reign with Jesus. And what does that mean practically? Well, it means that we are kings and queens if we are poor in spirit. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ. And if we are then kings and queens, then we have authority and power because the kingdom of heaven is within us. Because when we are poor in spirit, we are released from our own pride, our own self-worth, and we can become who God created us to become, and we can experience our potential and joy that only Jesus can bring. Like, come on! And not only that, but we're liberated and we're free from the grips of sin. We're not bound any longer by sin, but free to become who God would have you become. And it starts with the poverty of spirit, which will then become his power. Your weakness will become occasions for his power, your inadequacy for his adequacy, your poverty for his riches, your tentativeness for his confidence, and on and on and on. What a reward! Like, we need that. And it all begins at the moment that you're poor in spirit. Can't miss that. And so, as I start to land this thing, what are the practical steps for us? What do we have to remember here? Well, first, we got to remember, I've said it a lot, I'm going to say it again, that a sense of spiritual poverty is the foundation for any spiritual blessing or growth. And I can tell you with assurance that the seasons of my life where I've grown closest, felt the most empowered and intimately connected with Jesus and ultimately the most free, even though things were hard, those were the moments where I experienced the most difficult spiritual poverty. loneliness, depression, social pressure, guilt, shame over sin. Those times have led to the greatest spiritual blessing and growth I have ever experienced. And I'm sure I'm not alone. To realize that I cannot make it on my own, that there is nothing commendable I can offer to God, that's a really beautiful place to be. And if that's where you are this morning, Jesus is saying to you, you are blessed. You are approved. You are in sync with me. And sure, can we be a community that cultivates a culture of ongoing beggarly spiritual poverty? Because that's the key to growth and knowing Jesus more. 
great emptiness means great filling. Great poverty means great riches from above. And finally, the other thing to remember is that when you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We can't forget the position of this beatitude in the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the very first thing that Jesus says. And if you're thinking like, well, I don't know if, if I can do this. I'll say the fact that you feel like you aren't going to make it is a sign that you're making it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you. So can you say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to those for grace. Foul I fountain, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. Let's stand together and let's go into a time of response. And just before we, I pray and we sing and then we go into communion, let me ask a question from uh, a book on the Beatitudes I'm, I've been reading by uh, Daryl Johnson. He asked the question, will we ever be rich in spirit? It's a good question. And he says, yes and no. No, because we were created to live dependently. But yes, there is a time when we will be rich in spirit. You want to know when it is? Every time we are poor in spirit. Because in that moment, the Lord Jesus Christ says, yours is the kingdom. And so, Father, I just thank you for just this sermon that you preached that is absolutely relevant for us today as it was in your day. And I thank you that you have not and will not ever abandon us. And I just pray for a transformation of heart for my brothers and sisters in here and those watching at home. We just pray that you would be the root and source of all our hope of all our joy, because it's the only thing that is truly a blessing. Just pray for my brothers and sisters now as maybe we do some difficult work of just self-evaluation and we ask, like, have I been trusting in myself? Have I been putting my hope in other things? Lord, would you just chisel away at our hearts and give us the courage and the boldness to repent and turn back to you and say that you are Lord of all you and you alone. Lord, ultimately, I just pray for less of us in our lives and more of you. I pray that we would be a community that just bows before you, knowing that we are only able, if we turn to you, if we bow before your cross, if we submit to you fully, remind us of that. We need reminding of that. I just think of Paul, how often he preaches the gospel, and and he's often preaching the gospel to Christians. 
Because we need to be reminded. We're prone to forget. So Jesus, would you just remind us of how great you are, how good you are. So be with us now. We love you. We need you so desperately. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.